Have you ever had a time when you were driving and maybe some of you went on a family vacation? Raise your hand. Anybody on a family vacation? You went on a family vacation this summer, all right? Maybe you've been uh, driving on a vacation and you're, you're driving to or from and you kind of have that moment in the car when you're driving and you, you kind of look out the window and you, you do a double take and you kind of keep driving, but you realize, like, I'm going the wrong way. <laughs> like, this is... This is not good. And so my uh, senior year of high school, uh, I was at that, wo- at that moment with my uh, now wife, Mindy. I started liking her in sixth grade, never told her until we uh, were seniors in high school. And so we were kind of at this moment as seniors in high school where we were like in that flirting stage. There, were, there was kind of like some little bit of a mutual understanding that we were kind of liking each other as more than friends. Of course, it was always there for me. It took her a while to catch up to that. But we were... <laughs> We were in that moment, so I went on family vacation uh, with my parents and siblings, and um, really all I could think about was getting back to see Mindy. Like, I was gone for a whole week, you know, and all I had was the phone, and I hated that, right? So I wanted to see her, and we're driving, and uh, I was driving the car. My dad was asleep in the passenger seat. Everybody else was asleep in the car, and so I'm driving, and of course, I wanted to drive because I knew that they would all sleep, and I could speed, thus seeing Mindy sooner, okay? So I'm driving, and and... My dad wakes up. He's a little disoriented, you know, waking up or whatever, and, and he, he does the thing. And so he does it again. I'm looking at him. What? What's going on? I don't recognize that. I had driven in the wrong direction for two hours. <laughs> at some point, 75 in Kentucky goes to the right, and you're supposed to go that way to come back to Ohio, and I went straight instead. And so I totally messed it up, and I don't know if I ended up going to her house that night or not, but I wanted to see her so bad, but I learned a valuable lesson that night, and it is this, you will always end up in the exact direction you're headed toward. You'll always end up in the exact place of where you were headed toward. And it did not matter what my goal was to see her. It did not matter how much I wanted to be with her so desperately, right? It didn't matter. And so a lot of times in schools we'll go in and I see all of these lies all over the hallway like this. Um, Follow your dreams. If you believe it, you can achieve it. Like not true. You know why? If you actually take one step at a time toward your dream or toward your goal, then you'll see your goal. But just because you believe it in your mind, just because you, you see it, you can achieve it, it doesn't work that way. We'll always end up in the exact direction we're headed toward. There is a way that we live our lives. And if we're headed on the path toward what we want, we might achieve it. But if we're not headed on the path toward what we want, we will not. We'll always end up in the exact direction we're headed toward. So when you think about your life, and as I think about my life, there have been moments, not just on vacation, where I look back and I realize, wow, I am headed in the wrong direction. I'm going the wrong way. This is not right. But many times in life, we come to those moments where we find ourselves kind of self-examining or we find ourselves in a moment where we say, wow, this is not the way I thought things would be. This is not the way I intended for my life to go. Mindy and I are laying in bed last night and we were talking about something funny that our eight-year-old daughter did. If you don't know her, she's just super uh, loud and joyful and dramatic and fun. And that's just her. And I said, isn't it crazy that 
we could see that so early on. As a baby, she was all of those same things. And she was just a uniquely different personality uh, than the other five kids that we have. And so we were uh, just talking about that. And kind of in my next breath, I was like, wow, I'm so sad right now. She's not a baby anymore. <laughs> like she's eight years old. And I didn't really have this message in mind, mostly because I didn't have a message until this morning. But <laughs> I was thinking, wow. I will never get those eight years back. You know, it's kind of sad, right? And she'll never be a baby again. And I start thinking about all the kids. And I thought back to when I first found out that I was going to be a dad. And all of the, the flood of thoughts that came through my mind about what kind of dad I wanted to be and what kind of family that I, I wanted to have and, and the way that we would operate as a family, the way that I would operate as a dad, the way that I would, I would be there for my kids in their time of need, the way that I would laugh with them and the way that I would teach them, the way that I would direct them, the way that I would hug them when they're sad and mend their wounds when they get hurt. And I thought about all the ways that I would be a dad and now that uh, our oldest is nine and I look back and kind of with sadness a little bit and think I'll never have those years back, I'm, I'm examining and I'm thinking, is this the way that I intended this to be? Have I lived up to the ideas that I once had in my mind about the way I would be a dad? And it really doesn't matter whether you're applying this to parenting or if you're applying this to uh, where you are in life right now and maybe the decisions that we've made and maybe we found ourselves or find ourselves even today in a place where we would look back to our past with regret and uh, despair and why did I do that and, and I can't believe I'm where I'm at in life right now and as we look back we think to ourselves this is not the way I thought it would be. I didn't handle that the way that I thought I would have. I didn't survive under the pressures that came my way the way that I thought I would. I didn't handle that. I didn't go the way that I thought I would. And so we look back on our ways and we realize this, that in life there's a deep connection between what we want to do and what we actually do. In life there's a, there's a deep connection for us because we have these ideas and these goals and these dreams and these visions and these ideas in our life of the way that we want things to be, the way that things should be, the way that we hoped they would be, but there's a deep connection between what we want and what we actually do, what we want to do, and then, on the other hand, what we actually do. And so we find ourselves many times kind of excusing what we wanted to do, and we say things like this, my heart was in the right place. What, what we're really saying is, man, I really screwed up. Like, really, I, I messed this up. This was not the way that I wanted this to go down. Maybe we look at others and at times we make excuses for them and say, well, their heart was in the right place. They, they, they tried really hard, but there's this, this expectation that, well, I want to do the things that I actually want to do. This connection between what we want to do and what we actually do. We see this theme all throughout Scripture. Where it seems like the instruction given to us is all about the heart. And we're, we're taught and we preach this so much that the, the grace and love of God is, 
is so expansive, it's so deep, it's so wide that it can cover all of your sins. It can cover everything that you do and there is nothing that you or I can do to earn our way to heaven. In other words, there is nothing that we can do to earn the grace of God. And yet, as we read scripture over and over and over, there's still this connection between our faith and our works. Our heart being in the right place and then what we actually do. We can't leave one without the other. I've been reading in James for like six months now. I don't know, a long time. I just keep going back and I keep reading things and we're in this series called Summer in the Psalms. And so I was like, okay, I guess I got to find a psalm to preach about since we're in that and it's my turn to preach this week or whatever. Uh, So I went and I was reading through and as I read and I came to this psalm, Psalm 1. 19, I thought, wow, this, is, this sounds exactly like what I've been reading in James. Like the, the tone and the heart of all of this. And so I started researching just a little bit about Psalm 119. And I found out it's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. It's twice as long as the next longest psalm. And there's a very intentional and specific way that King David wrote this psalm. In fact, it's all divided into sections of eight verses at a time. And it follows the alphabet. And so every uh, single chapter follows one new letter of the alphabet. It's very intentional. It's very specific. It's very methodical. It's the longest one. And I wonder maybe if it's the longest one and so much intention to detail went into Psalm 119 because maybe it would be the thing that we, you and I, struggle with and deal with the most in life. It's the tension between my heart is in the right place and then what I actually do. And so he begins at the very beginning of 119 by saying this, Blessed are those whose ways. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of God. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. It's both. It's seeking him with our whole heart. It's my heart is in the right place. My heart is bent toward God. My heart is in submission or I I want to honor and be about his ways. But it's also, if my heart is there, it's blameless and walking according to the laws. It's both. They do no wrong, but they follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully observed. Oh, that my ways... All that my ways were steadfast. And as I'm reading this and I'm thinking about this, I'm asking myself, are my ways steadfast? Or are my ways mostly looking back? I, I, didn't, I don't recognize that. that. That's not the sign I thought I would see. I might be heading in the wrong direction here. I might not be following the way that I intended on following. Oh, that my ways... We're steadfast. When life comes, when conflict comes, when struggles come, do we find ourselves steadfast obeying his ways and decrees, following his ways? Then I would not be put to shame because after all, isn't shame the thing that we all feel when we do it another way? Isn't shame what we feel after we handle the conflict with our spouse in a way that we were not supposed to handle the conflict? And now we feel shameful and I'm a horrible husband and I can't believe I raised my voice and what's wrong with me? 
Our ways bring shame, but his ways and honoring his commands bring life. I will praise you. I will thank you, Lord. I will honor you because you have made a way for me to follow your way and not my own. I will praise you with an upright heart as I lean into your righteous laws. It's heart and leaning into his ways and his laws. It's my heart is in the right place and it's backed by my deeds and by my works and the way that I live out my life. I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Proverbs 14 says it like this, and we've all experienced a moment like this, but it says there's a way that seems right to a man. How many times have we found ourselves there? There was a way that I thought was right. There was a way that felt good in the moment. There was a way that seemed like the easy way out, so I would just go ahead and go with that in a moment. There was a way that seemed normal. It's what everybody does. It's, it's the way of the world. There was a way that seemed right, but actually in the end, it, it was leading me toward death in that relationship. It was leading me toward death in that conflict. It was leading me toward death in my future. It was leading me toward feelings of death in my, my own self, in my, my personal value and worth and, and peace of mind, where I was doing what, what I thought I should do in the moment that was going to get me head and, ahead, and it was going to bring into my life the things that I felt like I was missing, but I was doing it my way, and it actually led to death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, that way, that way is just the way toward death. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 7, and he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Do you know what that tells me? Guess, guess who's in sheep's clothing this morning? All of us. We're, we're the sheep. But somehow... There are some of us, including myself, who at times miss the reality that the faith we have is the one we sing about in the song this morning. It's from the inside out. It's not about what we wear on the outside. It's not about making sure that we look the part on the outside. And so we build everything else in our life except our relationship with Christ and we call it good. We build our business, we build our perfect little family, we, we purchase the home and have it decorated and meticulously cleaned, and we, we have it right on the outside, but, but it's really false. It's like a false prophet who comes in, and on the outside, everything looks fine, but on the inside, they're ferocious wolves. A ferocious wolf is continually chasing their appetite for the next thing and the next thing, and the next thing, and it's never satisfied. Searching for everything, but satisfied by nothing. It's false. It's not reality. It's just heart in the right place. It's not the way. He says, watch out for this false ideology, this false theology, this false teaching. Here's how you really know. Here's how we really know the kind of faith that we are living out. It's by their fruit. It's by the fruit of my life. It's by the fruit of your life that we will be recognized. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
He continues, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. What fruit is being produced in my life? What is the fruit that's being produced in your life? We say that we have our faith in this living hope. But oftentimes that living hope is not enough to show up as a living, vibrant hope in the middle of our marriage when it seems like things are not going well. It's not enough to show up as living hope when we feel so insecure that we feel like we have to over-accommodate and achieve and achieve and achieve so that someone will think that we're valuable or worthy by the things that we do. It's a living hope that we sing about on Sunday, but it's not the same kind of living hope that can allow me to love people when they persecute me, that can allow me to love people when they're doing things I disagree with, that allow me to go the extra mile for people who are considered to be my enemy. It's a living hope from the inside out. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. What does my life say about what I really believe? What is my life? What do the results of my life actually say about the faith I say I have? Continues verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. How do we consider that pure joy? Why is it pure joy? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I was talking to a guy not too long ago, and he has a pretty significant struggle with alcohol. As far as I know, he doesn't claim to be a believer. I know they don't attend church on a regular basis. But I'm talking to him, and he's really, you know, kind of telling me about all the drama in his family, all the issues and things in life. And I said to him, man, I I don't. I don't blame people for drinking. (laughs) Like, I, I don't really know when you face the pressure of life, when you face an unexpected loss, when you face something that you didn't see coming that you don't have any idea how to deal with, what else would you do except try to escape it for a few hours? What would you do except to go and scroll, 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 scroll and engage in everyone else's life and what's going on in the world so that I can ignore my own for a few minutes? I mean, what else would you do? I don't blame you for that. But it's not so with the kind of faith that is rooted in his way. Because when these trials that are considered to be the daily activities that come our way, these daily testings of every conversation that we have with other people, every time we have the opportunity to respond to someone that we disagree with, Every time that we have the opportunity to respond to someone who we believe is treating us unfairly. It's an opportunity to consider it pure joy because we know that it's the testing of our faith. And that brings perseverance where we no longer feel like we have to escape the lives that we live in. But we can stand in it and we can stand firm and we can stand ready and we can stand resilient because our hope is built on Christ, because our way and our path is the one that He has laid out before us. That is our way. So it builds perseverance in the face of adversity, because you know that the testing of your faith produces 
testing always produces something. See, in the middle of 2020 pandemic, the world is shutting down. Everyone's arguing. Nothing seems clear. Who do we believe? Where do we go? I can't believe that they think differently than me. We always thought we were like together on this, but they wear a mask and I hate masks and now we can't be friends. You know, it's like all of these things in life that we challenge, were challenged with. What did that produce in me? Did it produce more anger? Maybe it's because anger was there all along. See, the things cannot come out of me that were not already within me. It's a change from the inside out. The testing of our faith, it produces something. And when? When we are rooted in following the ways and the path of Christ, it produces perseverance. It does not produce anger. It does not produce, I'm out of control. It does not produce, I'm feeling empty. I have no idea what to do. It produces perseverance in our lives because we're rooted and walking on his path. When you look at testing, here's what this actually means. When you go back to the original uh, text, it means the fidelity, integrity, virtue, or consistency. And so what's being tested here is our conviction, the conviction of our faith and belief in the way of Jesus. Our fidelity, our integrity, our, our purity, our fervency, our consistency in the way that we say we believe in the way of Christ. This is the way he would do it. This is the way that he wants to change and work inside my own heart and my life. That is what is being tested and that is what our fruit will bear. Because these are not independent. It's not just... He did his best. It's not just his heart was in the right place. It's heart and fruit. And if we were really being true to this, it's actually, it actually seems like he's making the case that the fruit and the production of your life is actually what speaks to how genuine your faith really is, not the other way around. Verse 4 says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That would be a great place to live. (laughs) I don't have to control things anymore. I don't have to fight for my own way so hard anymore. But yet I can be steady. The fruit of my life can be one of consistency. I'm not the up and down person who's constantly up one day, down the next. Full of faith one day, the God of miracles, he's the way maker, promise keeper. Completely out of control, a wreck, the next. It's the consistency of our belief in his ways. It's the fruit of our life that produces the results of where our faith really stands. It's the perseverance finishing its work so that you may be mature and complete, not liking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lack the understanding, we spend so much time, we invest so much time in trying to figure out God's will. What job does he want me to take? Where does he want me to go? Does he want me to buy this house or this house? 
I'm not totally sure how interested he is in all of that stuff, to be quite honest with you, but I do know that he said, if we pray anything according to his will, he will give it to us. And right here, he's telling us what to pray for. What he wants to give us is wisdom. If any of you is unclear about my way, if any of you are unclear about the way that leads to life, because I get it, it's hard to understand in this world. Our culture is so messed up. There are so many voices. There are so many things. There are so many wolves in sheep's clothing. There, there are so many things that test this. I get it. But he's telling us he will give us the wisdom that we need. When is the last time? When is the last time that I've had a moment with God where I said, I need your wisdom? Not the wisdom of Fox News to decipher what I believe about a certain issue, not the wisdom of CNN to decipher what I believe about this. I don't just need the, whim, the, the approval. I don't just need the wisdom. I don't just need the ideology of what those who are in my circle believe to be true. God, I need your wisdom to make it through this. I need a kind of wisdom that this world doesn't even get. They don't even understand it. And he says, when you pray for that wisdom, it is my will and I will give it to you. And he gives it generously to all without fault, finding fault. It will be given to you. So what is this kind of wisdom? In chapter 3, he kind of explains some of this wisdom. And so he says this, who is wise and understanding among you? How do we know if we were, are living by God's wisdom? It's crazy. The fruit. How do we know if our lives are being lived in his way, in his path? It says, who's wise and understanding among you? Who has this wisdom that I just told you I would give you? Let them show this wisdom by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from this wisdom. It's a wisdom that supersedes our church attendance and supersedes our ideologies of just kind of like putting our heart in the right place and and that's enough guess what our heart being in the right place it's actually not enough and that's the point because we can never ever be enough without christ it's not enough the kind of faith that saves us The kind of faith that James lays out for us, the kind of faith that he's no doubt drawing from Psalms 119, that kind of faith, the real Jesus, the real faith is the one that produces works as well. It's the one that shows up evident in the fruit of our lives. So we go back to James chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, but when you ask for this wisdom... You must believe and not doubt. And I think that probably for most of us in this room, it's like, well, no, I don't doubt. Like, he's God, (laughs) right? Like, I'm I'm not doubting that. Okay, Nate, you don't have to twist my arm. I know God's ways are best. Well, so, so how do we doubt? Because this would have been his audience as well. I think that we, he includes this here because we're prone to doubt by the way that we take everything upon ourselves to do the work. I have to do this. I can make this happen. And to be totally honest with you, this is me. And I had a friend this week who asked me, what could they pray for? And this was my prayer. That I would know 
when I have done enough, and now it's him. (laughs) Because I'm really good at making things happen. Part of my personality, part of my upbringing, I don't know. I can make stuff happen. I can do it. I can build stuff. I can do things. It's just, it's good. I can do that. But oftentimes, I become so overwhelmed by taking the weight of doing everything on my own shoulders that before I know it, I am off of his path and I'm on my own. And I find myself becoming so overwhelmed with anxiety, so overwhelmed with the pressure that I have brought on myself because I'm trying to do it my own way. I found myself so in the middle of everything that I've piled on top of myself that I'm seeking some sort of escape and it's usually not a healthy one. So this is me, not me preaching to you. This is us. Believe and not doubt that his way really is the way, not mine. But those who who doubt and try to do it their own way, they become like waves of the sea. So he gives us some examples here. He gives us a, a word picture here for us to kind of evaluate our own lives. That's what the book of James is all about. Look in the mirror. Blown and tossed by the world. Do you feel like a wave tossed in the sea? Do you feel today like you're just blown about and tossed by the wind? Maybe. Maybe it's time to get a hold of the real faith that it was promised to us. That person should not expect anything from God. This is not God looking down saying, you did it the wrong way, don't expect anything from me, buddy. No, it's not that. It's, I've already told you that I would give you the wisdom to know my ways. I've already sent my son to perform the best work and the only work that you need. I loved you so much that I took action and I proved it with my deeds. I proved it with my works and I sent my son to you. You can expect on the other side, When you ask for my wisdom, when you follow my ways, when you choose not to take this all on yourself, maybe, if we flip this verse around, maybe we can expect everything from God. Maybe we can actually expect that in the middle of our marriage, he can turn it around when it seems like there's no way. Maybe it means that in the middle of my inadequacies and my insufficiencies and me wondering if I'm ever going to be doing it right, that I could actually produce fruit in the lives of my kids where they look at me and they see somehow the Father in the way that I am a father to them. Maybe, maybe I can expect to receive from God the wisdom and the grace and the mercy and the understanding that I need to deal with people that I disagree with. Maybe I can receive everything from God where the good fruit in my life is being produced where I care for people who are in need where I notice people who are downcast and I notice people when their face looks different and I'm able to walk up to them and give them a word of encouragement and be there for them in their time of need and be the mouthpiece of God to them in that moment because I can expect to receive everything from him when I follow his ways. I can expect to receive everything that I need. I can expect from him everything. But when I do not follow my ways, don't expect anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded. I'm I'm saying one thing with my mouth, but I'm doing another thing. 
I'm saying that this kind of faith is enough to get me up and get out of bed to come to church on a Sunday morning, but it's not enough to give me the power to have self-control in the middle of an argument at home. But it's not enough to give me the determination I need to have integrity when I have the opportunity to lie. It's enough for me to put some offering in the box. It's enough for me to send the text and give my check or my my money for the week, but it's not enough for me to know how to handle my child in their time of need. And they need direction and wisdom and guidance from me. Double-minded. I believe one thing, but, but I live another way. And can I just tell you that in working with teenagers for the last 15 years, the most destructive thing in the life of a teenager is not the fact that they have porn in their pocket on their phone any given time they want. The most destructive thing in the life of a teenager is not the fact that prayer has been taken out of schools. The most destructive thing, not just for teenagers, but for our culture and for the world, is not who is sitting in the White House. The most destructive thing in the life of the teenagers that I have worked with and what I know to be true about our culture and our world is a bunch of Christians who don't live out real, genuine, authentic faith. It's the most destructive thing. A kid grows up and watches their parents over and over and over and over again show up to church and they go home and they have a form of godliness but they deny the power to actually be in love as a couple and for that child to watch their parents love one another. What kind of faith is that, James would say? That is not the kind of faith that saves you. Man, this is hard, isn't it? This is hard to hear. It's hard to evaluate from from here and hearing the words to get it right here. Am I actually living the faith of Christ? Am I actually following in his ways? And James says it's really, really hard because what what many people do, what many people do is they, they go and they look in the mirror, but those who hear the word and they don't do what it says, they They look in the mirror and then they turn around and they immediately forget what they look like. You know, the interesting thing about a mirror is when you're looking in a mirror, you're looking at yourself. Maybe the greatest evidence in my life and yours to the fact that we're not looking intently into the mirror of God that wants to make change in us is when we are so critical of other people. When we're so busy looking at everyone else and what they're doing and calling the shots for them and letting them know what's right and wrong that we have taken down the mirror from ourselves, forgot completely what we look like and gotten our eyes on everyone else. It's the reason that when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was giving examples of how to live after his way, he said, do not look at the piece of sawdust in your brother's eye, rather look at the log in your own. He said, there is a way that leads to destruction, and it is called the broad road. Do you see the cause and effect here? Do you see the the language of production of good fruit, the things that our lives produce? He's talking about the broad way, and it leads to, or it produces, or what comes out of following the way of the broad road is destruction. 
if our lives are full of destruction, guess what way we're not on? Because the broad path leads to destruction, but it's the narrow path that leads to life. He goes on and he talks about building a house. And he says, some people, they build their house on the sand. And guess what the results of that kind of life produce? When the wind comes and the floodwaters rise, that house cannot stand. On the flip side of that, when we build our house on the rock, when we build our house and our lives His way, We can stand in the face of adversity. We can stand in the face of conflict. We can stand in the face of hard times and remain strong because we're doing it His way. So He says it's like like just looking in the mirror and and we just turn around and we just just look at everybody else and we forget about what we look like. It's, It's definitely easier to do. It's definitely a lot simpler be critical of everything and everyone else. But he says this, whoever looks intently into the perfect law, the perfect law is that mirror. Whoever looks intently, isn't it interesting that it's assumed? It's assumed that we're going to look intently. It's almost as if the, the heart of the matter, the my heart is in the right place is assumed here. Let's assume for a minute that your heart is in the right place and you are intensely looking into the perfect law that gives freedom. Freedom is a good thing. I'm no longer bound any longer to do things the way the world does them. I'm no longer bound anymore to do things the way that I want them to be done. I'm no longer bound to react out of my own sinful nature in the middle of a conflict, in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a temptation. I'm no longer bound to pursue the things that will only lead to death, but I actually have freedom to love my wife purely. I have freedom to love my kids intensely. I have freedom to share the good news and be a light and like a light on a shining hill to the world, to those around me. I have the the freedom to live free, carrying no secrets any longer, carrying no shame any longer. That is a great life of freedom. Who, when we're looking intently into the law that gives freedom and continue in it, because it's really difficult not to continue in it. It's constant redirecting. Where am I? I need to look in the mirror again. I need to fix my hair again. Something's out of place again. I'm continually looking back. And when I continue in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, then they will be the first word that we find back in Psalm 119. It says, blessed. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him in their heart. They do no wrong, but they follow his ways. The way, the way that we live our faith, the way that we show and represent and know the authenticity of our faith and the purity of our hearts and our innermost intentions, motivations, desires. The way we know if that heart is in the right place, the way is in the walk. What is the walk? 
It's one step at a time. That's how we walk. One conversation at a time. What fruit came out of that conversation with that person? What did I produce in the middle of this conflict? What did I produce in the middle of this massive decision that I'm trying to make? What am I producing when I'm tested on all sides? What am I producing when it feels like I've lost everything and all hope is gone in and of myself? What am I producing? The way is in the walk. Jesus said this in John chapter 14. He's having a conversation with his disciples and they're saying, how do we know the Father? How how do we get to him? We know we need him. This is a messed up life. It's a messed up world. I mean, we're constantly looking back saying, I'm going the wrong way. He says, how do we get to the Father? And Jesus tells them multiple times the answer to this question and yet they still question him one more time. And it's like maybe they threw their hands up a little bit and said, Jesus, like, we're dumber than you think we are. Could you please be more clear? So Jesus finally answered and says, I am the way to the Father. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's play this with James for a minute. We go back to James, and he's closing out chapter 2, and it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but they have no deeds? Can such faith save them? Is this this a real faith at all if their faith is absent of deeds? Suppose a brother or sister, he's just giving an example here. Suppose someone comes in, and they don't have any clothes or daily food. If one of them... Uh, If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but actually does nothing for their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it if we say my heart was in the right place? What good is it if we have really lofty goals? What good is it if we say, well, this is what I really, really, really want, but we don't actually do anything about it? What good is it if we have a form of godliness, but we deny the power to walk Every day following his path and his way, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And here's where he says it. It's amazing. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Meaning, the fruit of my life will speak for itself. The good life that I live will speak for itself. The way that I walk out my life in my family and on my job, in my workplace, with people on the golf course, with people on social media, the way that I live my life will speak for itself. I wonder if we consider the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I wonder sometimes if maybe we have enough faith to believe that he is the truth. He's the truth, and so we become really, really good at making sure all the people around us know the truth. This is what Jesus says about this. This is the way that Jesus says we're supposed to do it, and we blast it everywhere we can, and we make sure everybody knows about the truth of Jesus. We know all his ways are best. Yeah, yeah, I believe the truth. Well, maybe we have enough faith for the life part that I have my get-out-of-jail-free card. 
and I have salvation and I can raise my hand and I can dedicate my life to Christ. Jesus, come into my heart. I confess with my mouth that you are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Maybe we can have enough faith to say that my eternal destiny is secure. But do we have enough faith to start at the very beginning where Jesus started and said, no, my way leads you to truth and my truth leads you to life. The order matters. He said, I am the way. We'll always end up in the exact direction we're headed toward. Could we this morning consider our ways? Could we consider if our steps are the steps that were ordered for us by God? Are we following His way? in our conversations? Are we following his way in our emotional, mental, physical health? Are we following his way in the way that we make decisions and use our time, use our influence? Are we walking his way when it comes to our life counting for something and mattering and making a difference and adding value to the world around us as his salt and light on the earth? Are we walking in his way? Am I walking in his way? The way is in the walk. Maybe the greatest evidence of how genuine and authentic our faith in Christ really is, our pure and undefiled faith is in our good life, is in our production, is in the fruits of our lives. Could we examine ourselves this morning? I'm going to invite those who are serving communion to go ahead and come forward. This is something that we do almost every single week. But this moment, make no mistake about it, it's not as much a moment for us to take communion and to just do communion. And I'm going to drink of the juice and I'm going to eat the wafer. This is a moment to remember what he has done for us. And he conquered death, hell, and the grave so that we could live in freedom. Our freedom did not come cheap. He conquered all of the testings and the trials of this life so that we could walk in his way of freedom. And that's what this moment is about. For him to do a heart work in us as we remember what he has done. So this morning, maybe you have a, a cup and you got one off the table and you want to receive communion in your seat. That's great. For others of you, maybe you want to come to uh, this place of prayer up front and maybe you want to receive communion there and ask God to speak to your heart. Have I had maybe just enough faith to believe that he's the truth and maybe just enough faith to believe that he's the life, but I haven't started at where it all is supposed to start by doing it his way. Could we pray and ask God to examine areas and point these areas out to us? God, where am I not doing it your way? Where am I on the path that only leads to destruction? Could we have a moment this morning as we receive communion to do as James says and look in the mirror? I invite you to join us up front or in your seat and receive communion.